welcome to Chit Chat Money. On this show, hosts Ryan Henderson and Brett Schaefer interview industry experts and riff on the world of investing. As a quick reminder, Chit Chat Money is a CCM Media Group podcast. Ryan and Brett are also general partners at Arch Capital, and Arch Capital may have positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Anything discussed on Chit Chat Money by Ryan or Brett or any other podcast guests is not formal advice or recommendation. Now, please enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Here you are, miles from home and ready to start your vacation. Good thing you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. They have free high-speed Wi-Fi to stream all your favorite movies. And in the morning, get fresh waffles with their free bright side breakfast. Or squeeze in a workout at their fitness center. Either way, you're ready to conquer the day. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you triumph. Book your stay at LQ.com. All right, we are live. This is the CCM Investing Power Hour. Uh, this is a show where we don't, well, the big rule is we have no topics going in. So that's the only rule, no preparation. Uh, this is a new format we're doing. This is the third real episode. So we're still getting the feelers out here, but I'm joined with Ryan Henderson as always. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I uh, I just realized I need to charge my computer here. So why don't you uh, move to Ian? All right, Ian. Yeah, we'll let Ryan deal with that. Plug in a bit. Ian, how are you doing? You're on a call today. You might not be able to share what it was, but it sounds like you may have had a busy morning. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of a busy morning, but uh, excited to be on now. Excited to talk the market. We got a closed market today. So, you know. I know. Why, to, are uh, we, why is it closed for Good Friday? That doesn't... <laughs> I thought... I didn't know that was that, that was that big. Like, is that just kind of a legacy thing? I guess so. I didn't. I didn't remember that either until, you know, I was. I had some options that were coming due, and they were coming due on a Thursday instead of a Friday. So I was like, oh, I guess it must be must be Good Friday. Mm, those degenerate trades, huh, Ian? Right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, all right. Well, we got no one watching as usual, but hopefully, when well, we should say for because the majority of people here are listening on the podcast. We do this live on YouTube every 10 a.m. Pacific time on Fridays, 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern. So if you want to join, uh, there's usually no one watching right now. We're kind of just recording it live and then having everyone listen back later. But if you want to, we'll have the chat going, maybe see some comments. Could be fun, but also it'll always be recorded as usual. But it's also just a good way to ask us questions. Yeah. Oh, Ian, you sent a note here. Flip the gallery view. Yes. All right. We're still working things out. Gallery. There we go. All better. All right. Uh, any topics today? Like any, well, we're not you guys have been come prepared with topics. I know, but anything you guys have been reading this week? I read, uh, or I started reading. So there was the Buffett interview with Charlie Rose that came out, which was like, it felt like it was kind of like this, just like, uh, unannounced drop. Like it, there was no press around it. I just like saw it on someone's Twitter feed and I was like, Oh, okay. I started watching that and he recommended the book trillion dollar triage, um, which is basically like a historical account of, it's really well written so far from what I've read. Uh, it's a, like a historical account of the March, 2020, uh, basically financial response or the, the feds response. And, I have a newfound respect for Jay Powell. 
That's what Buffett said. He had some high praise for the man. Uh, and I the, think a lot of like, you know, yeah, the gold bug uh, type followers of Buffett, while, you know, I, I respect all of you guys. It seems like he may have a different opinion of the guy Powell that a lot of people use as a scapegoat, which seems, do you guys think it's strange? And I guess kind of that's on the same topic that Jay Powell gets used as a scapegoat, like for a lot of the, I don't know, just a lot of things in the economy and the financial world. It's, it's all from, from so far what I've read, it seems like the fed chair is always the easiest person to point your finger at. And the, uh, Jay Powell, I don't know if there's anyone that's more mutually respected by both sides of the aisle from like what I'm reading. Obviously there's going to be people that are like, you're not, you know, you're not citing, this isn't our way to do it from whatever political side of the aisle you're on, but everyone's kind of like intimidated by like, they know they don't know more than him. And there's kind of this just mutual respect among everyone for Powell, like what he says goes kind of thing. Yeah, that sounds reminds me of uh, Benjamin Strong back from the the starting of the Fed, although he was the New York Fed governor. Um, that let me, let me or, pull you got up a quote the, here. You had a quote uh, here, Ryan. Yeah, I got I got a quote. Let me go to the marked pages. I would do that. I'm using the Amazon Kindle for the first time, so is it a better product? Yeah, it's like the same. I you can hide that. It. that has the the underlying things that people highlight. I kind of like that, but it's kind of like telling me what's important, so it's it feels strange. Ian, have okay. you ever seen that? Yes, I have. I used to so, be a big Kindle user back in the day, actually. So the uh, the 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 first few chapters are like pretty good. It kind of talks about like Powell's upbringing and then like why the Fed was started and sort of how it's evolved and. Uh, it talks about how it's supposed to be independent, but all throughout history, there's basically been presidential overreach to like have it there the way they want. And it shows just how hard of a position Fed chair can really be. And so there's one example where uh, President Johnson, I think in the 60s, um, basically the Fed chair was not acting the way he wanted. And it said, uh, Johnson had already asked his attorney general whether language in the Federal Reserve Act that allowed the president to fire a governor for cause gave him grounds to dismiss Martin. Martin was the Fed chair at the time. The answer was no. He said, alone in the president's living room, Johnson let Martin, Martin have it. He says in quotes, you took advantage of me, and I just want you to know that's a despicable thing to do. Johnson advanced on Martin, pushed him around the room, and shouted in his face, boys are dying in Vietnam and Bill Martin doesn't care. So it's uh, like, yeah, high pressure. And they also talked about the calls that Trump would give to Powell. And it was like, and the tweets, right. And the tweets, right. The, the, the tweets. ominous tweets. Yeah. And he's basically just got to be, I mean, it would almost, I'd almost, you either have like, you either are intimidated into doing it, like what the president wants, or I would think that you'd almost have like an adverse reaction to be like, I'm, I'm not going to let you tell me what to do and you're going to take like the opposite action. But Powell's been able to essentially like just stick to his guns on whatever the data he's being fed is. And it, anyway, it, the, the book gives me, a, I see why Buffett has so much praise and respect for Powell. All right. Recommended reading. I think that yeah. could be good. We'll probably have to, 
maybe Ian, we'll have to finish the books. Maybe, I don't know. Then we can talk about it maybe a few weeks from now, probably after the, the Berkshire annual meeting, which if anyone's listening, we, us three will be there. Brad, I know Brad always joins the show a lot for the not so deep guys. I don't believe he is going, but us three will be there. So if, I don't know, DM us on Twitter or email some guests, us. Some previous guests will be there as well. Lots of them. I know we don't have any famous guests or anything, but lots of, if you're an investor hey, and it, you like, you know, there's a few, there's a few, but any of the, uh, you know, any investors that you want to meet or stuff like that. And if you just want to talk with us, that'd be great. We'd love to meet anyone. We're thinking, we about, note here. Uh, we're thinking about setting up a Spotify bowls booth for all. <laughs> yeah. So we can like pass, out, fly- bias. pass out flyers with the bull thesis for Spotify. Yeah. That, 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 that'd be great. We need to, <laughs> we need to get that stock, that stock up. All right. That's a joke, but in all seriousness, we got a little comment here. So thank you for the Caesar conception conception. The one uh, Ooh, person watching. Caesar. Thank you. Uh, Musk Twitter poison pill drama was the comment. So I think you guys want to, we should, we should talk about that for at least a little bit. I think a lot of people want to hear about that, but I know it's covered on basically every financial news thing. So any thoughts on that? It seems like normal craziness. I don't know. Ian, you, you, you haven't had a chance to speak. What do you think? Yeah, I'll just throw in my two cents. So it, I think it's the typical craziness, right? There's always some some story going around with, it's funny because there's always some story going around with Twitter or Tesla or Elon Musk, and this has all three of them, right? So um, I think, I don't know. I, I'll just full, for full disclosure, um, earlier this week, I bought an in the money call option that expires this summer, basically. And my, my thinking behind it was it was kind of a degenerate option play and it's a meaningless amount of money basically. But, um, but I thought, you know, I don't think this drama is over. Um, I think there's, because it was right after he bought his, you know, his 9% or announced his 9% stake. And, um, right after the, uh, they said he wasn't going to be on the board of director or he declined being on the board of directors. And I thought there's something else going on here. And I didn't really know what it would be, but I thought, oh, I'm going to go ahead and put something out there. Well, sure enough, then, you know, the next day or two days later, we got the announcement of the, the quote unquote offer from Elon. Um, I don't know where it goes from here. I think there's, uh, I don't know. I, it, it's, I think it's going to be a fun story to follow just because it's kind of crazy. And at least right now, Elon has so much money that he can kind of do whatever he wants to do to some extent. Um, at least that's what it seems like. And I don't know about that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. There's, there's, I don't think I'll, this, for the same reason that I opened that option a couple or a couple days ago, um, I think it's going to be the case going forward that there's more to this story. There's going to be more to come and it's going to be something interesting to watch. I don't know what's going to happen, right? Like, I don't think Elon Musk is going to take Twitter private. That seems unlikely, but <laughs> to say the least. Um, yeah. But I think there's going to be some more fireworks over the next couple of weeks. What about yeah. you guys? I don't, I don't have a super, I don't really have an insightful take on it. And I'm not actually sure what the poison pill or the anti-takeover provisions like specifically entail and like what that prohibits. I can, I can explain that quickly. I read a little yeah. tiny bit on that. It's basically, so if you do a tender offer um, for an acquisition, you don't need board approval. You just need shareholder approval. But if there's a poison pill provision, it can force uh, the board to have to approve something, even if it's a tender offer. So the poison pill makes basically makes it so you need board approval for an acquisition, even though in the law, 
of the United States, there's technically a way to bypass that and go like as a shareholder only one. But if you have the poison pill, you can't do that. So say Elon Musk could get shareholder approval and buy it out. If they have the poison pill, he would then need to get the board's approval as well. Okay. The Well, it sounds like it hasn't quite gone according to plan. I don't know if Musk had a plan going into this, but I, I would imagine he did. Um, and it sounds like it kind of hasn't gone his way. Uh, it, to me, and maybe this is like the cynical view, but to me, it feels like a way for him to sell more Tesla potentially, like to to sort of make that net worth that is currently illiquid and, and sort of just paper net worth more real, more tangible is by saying like, well, I have to sell it in order to, in order to save free speech. Like that's why I'm, that's why I'm selling my shares. So don't, you know, and then maybe it doesn't look so bad on the sale. Like you you have to have a reason last time it was tax purposes, even though, which even though now he bought, he used those proceeds to buy Twitter stock. Right. Like he used them. Obviously it wasn't tax purposes, but now it's like, well, I'm saving free speech. So uh, that's the only reason I'm selling. And it kind of gives him a way out. Also, it's a perfect pump and dump. Like it's wonderful. It's like, uh, also, it might not be a dump though, because it could be a pump and then someone else buys them out for a higher bid, say $60 a share or something like that. That would be a success story. And my, like, that's the only, that's the way I see this being successful for all parties. Ian, Ian included. Who's going to, who's going to do, who's going to do that? Oh, there's a lot of liquidity out there, you know, KKR. I don't know. Thomas Bravo. KKR said there was like a fake headline that I know, KKR but that's not going to do it. The, why not? I don't know. KKR have, probably won't, but the, I don't someone think they said, have the size to do it. Uh, they could. Apparently Thomas Bravo wanted to, I mean, they would, they would get more people to finance it together. Be, you know, there'd be a lead in a lead like an LBO, right? Yeah. Something like that. I am talking a bit over my skis, but the, the I think the only company I feel like the only companies that could really do it are big tech. Oh, that and would have cash, interest in doing it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I don't think anyone has any interest in doing it except for a take private deal. But if you take if you uh, take them private at sixty dollars a share, I don't know. Maybe Ian, you have any other thoughts about is that a like company a want company? private? Yeah, you probably do because then you can actually try to experiment with stuff. You know, instead of. Like you can experiment with more different monetization strategies, subscriptions or whatever. I feel like that's the best route because do they need publicly? to dig because the stock, like people are afraid when it's public about, you know, short-term quarterly targets and they set they those are targets. Doing that stuff. No, not really. They're not. I mean, they're, they're, dip, they're dipping their toe into these subscription things. I would say they set up these targets for DAUs or whatever they call them for 2023. They have to hit them or basically they set these targets, they set these advertising targets and all that stuff. And they don't really have any leeway to, and especially with the activist investors to take big experiments, like say charging someone, I don't know, doing experiments with subscriptions, like real, real subscriptions, not those add-ons. If you're going to get what I mean, that would be the benefit of going private. This episode is brought to you by KPMG. As a business leader, how can you innovate, build trust, and move forward in a digital era? 
KPMG can help by bringing together the right talent and technologies, generating insights that spark opportunities. To explore their thinking, visit read.kpmg.us slash opportunities. It's not a very, I, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't really want to be the owner that takes them private. Oh, well, right. I think that's the, I think that's the problem is that I don't know who is taking Twitter private for $40 billion, except it would have to be, I think some sort of situation like Musk, where it's someone who sees this grand vision, because this isn't something that you can take private, I don't think, and just really jack up the profitability. There's a lot of execution that is here. It's not like you're going to take Twitter private and just cut a bunch of costs. And then all of a sudden it's this super profitable business. Um, Like it needs some cost cut probably, but I don't think it's, like a prime candidate for, for an LBO or something like that. Um, for those yeah. reasons, like you, you're going to want the, the story with Twitter is, Hey, it's under monetized. If we add these other features and we do this other, these other things, then we can grow revenue and eventually, you know, then we'll become more profitable because we're going to better monetize the platform. But that doesn't seem like the t- traditional thing that people typically take these companies private for, especially if you're going to, if it's going to be in the ballpark of $40 billion. So I think it comes down to, it's got to be some sort of strategic buyer probably with something, someone, you know, like you were talking about big tech or, you know, PayPal was rumored to be interested in Pinterest. Um, like, I don't know. There, I, there's, there's a number of companies out there that could buy something like this. And even, I don't know, like there's, you could, it's all the typical names, right? It's the big tech names. You throw in, you throw in PayPal, you throw in uh, maybe even like a Salesforce or something. And I don't know why they would do it, but who knows there's Oracle, right? You kind of throw in all those names and you say, maybe there's someone there who's willing to willing to buy it and any a consumer tech, really. play. Right. But then you get into an even smaller universe because a lot of the big tech stuff is going to have regulatory burdens to try and actually make this happen. And so like, I don't think like Facebook can't buy Twitter. Um, Microsoft probably has trouble buying Twitter. I assume Apple has trouble buying Twitter because of regulatory reasons. They, and, and they so, would never do that. Yeah. Right. And they want to do it. And so, you know, you, you start getting into a pretty narrow universe of the companies that have the wherewithal to buy Twitter and the companies that have, that won't have like intense regulatory scrutiny in it, buying Twitter. Yeah. And it, it's immediately because it's such a political um, because it has such a big influence on elections, the platform you, whoever the buyer is, it's immediately like, all right, what's their political orientation? That's like the first thought, like how does this impact the next election? And so I, I think there would be a ton of pushback for anyone in big tech to be a buyer. Um, I don't, I just don't see it's such a hard company to own. That's why they need someone is to take it private because you have to experiment with stuff that might not work and you have to have a permanent owner that you can't be worried about the stock falling 90%. All right. We have a comment here about Elliott management that is at, that does add another wrinkle that they are the activists. They also have a private equity firm. They're just kind of a giant hedge fund investment, you know, and uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar with Elliot, they have maybe one of the best. the The founder Paul Singer is like known for his litigation prowess and being able to basically win deals in the courtroom. He at one point was like, at one point seized a ship from the Argentinian government, if I'm not mistaken. 
Yeah, that's correct. So they they were they were suing for so Argentina defaulted on their debt and they owned some of the debts, the distressed debt, and they were suing to get payment. Um, but they decided to seize a yacht or not a yacht, a uh, military, military ship, ship as collateral. As collateral. Yeah. yeah. And they were they were all that I guess it worked out. Well, I don't know how much that military ship was worth and you know, returning cash to share uh, your investors, but that's I guess another a story for another time. But yeah, that does add another wrinkle. I don't know. I mean, they're not probably big enough to do it on their own, but they could be influential in what happens because they have the board seats, all that good stuff where they can drive the direction of where things go because they're looking, I think, to make, you know, the activists, I think they've been around for two years or more now. Like they're looking for a way to get returns off of their Twitter investment. It's a sizable one and it has done very, very poorly. So Musk honestly could be that avenue to get them out. Yeah, I don't know if they, like in my mind, I'm picturing this like like Singer and Elliott Management headbutting with Musk. But if anything, I think Musk is like something they've been looking for, like a way out. And ultimately, they're, I don't think they're as long-term of holders as maybe uh, they are. At the end of the day, they're activist investors. So it's like, they don't want to be a private owner I don't think they have that much, uh, sentimental Twitter doesn't have a whole lot of sentimental value to them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they need, and that's the thing, finding a private owner for Twitter, you need to find someone that's not worried about three to five year cash flows, like a typical PE firm or something like that. You need to find something, some entity or person that is really worried about like keeping the, value of Twitter culturally in line or intact, plus making it a viable business, whatever that means. I mean, it's a viable business right now, but they just have, you know, bad, it's just been a bad stock, but making it more like they're not cared. They don't care if it's worth, I don't know, a hundred billion dollars 10 years from now, or if it's worth the same, they kind of just want to own it for, yeah, economically. Cause you want, you know, you don't want it to just turn $40 billion into zero but some of it is just to keep it. And that brings it back to the political stuff, which opens up a whole nother topic that I really don't know much about, but any other, anything else guys on that? Any, I, I don't, there is something that concerns me about Musk owning a significant media outlet. And it's not like, it's, it's not just like a newspaper, you know, like this is sort of the modern day, like all well, of the, all, it's all the newspapers yeah. blended into one. Yeah. I don't know if that's, I don't know. I have some, I have some reservations that are maybe a more like personal reservations about that, but I don't know if he's like the biggest free speech advocate as, as he climbs. Well, he does shut down. I mean, as people who have followed the Tesla story, uh, as a lot of people have, he does, you know, if someone's negative to him, he does act a little bit like, uh, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the word authoritarian, but like he acts very, very harshly when someone's critical of him. And it's pretty brutal sometimes, some of the stories you hear, which does not, like you said, yeah. like I agree that that for someone to own Twitter, that, that I, I don't I don't like that at all. Also, because I post negative about Tesla, I might I might get banned. Yeah, you'll <laughs> that be would suspended. Ruin. The Tesla, the Tesla Q, uh, whatever, cash tag will be gone. What if he... Like everyone's making like, all these sure you want to tweet that? Yeah. 
what if everyone's making all these theories like us right here, we're kind of going through all these different things and we really have no idea. But what if at the end, someone's like, so why'd you buy it? And he's like, and they're like, so what do you want to do Elon while you're here? He's like, well, first on my list, I mean, I have this list of Twitter accounts that use the Tesla <laughs> Q hashtag. Can we just know oh, where Tesla charts go? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. I have another thing that I was reading this morning and that is Andy Jassy's first letter to shareholders as the CEO of Amazon. Did you guys read that at all? I did not. I have not gotten a chance to read it. It's on my list though. So I'm going to have to read it right after this. What was what were do, the highlights? Classic Amazon sure, six pager. <laughs> I am pretty sure I saw Andy Jassy at a Dick's Burgers in Seattle. So make it that way you will. He's a guy. He's a man of the people. Adjust your portfolios accordingly. Yeah. What <laughs> <laughs> he he did have he did have the black Escalade right. So yeah, he had a, the black es- black Escalade. His driver like opened the door for him, and I I and so I'm assuming this is Andy Jassy. I, I think it was because I thought I knew his face. Uh, and he ordered two meals at Dick's Burgers, gave one to a homeless guy, and then got back in the Escalade. His like driver opened the door for him. It was it was it was. It was quite the sight to see. Nice. And I met, I golfed with someone that worked as like a vice president at Amazon that said two things I remember that advertised the advertising business could double overnight, which I was like, all right, that's interesting. Uh, and two, he said Andy Jassy was the smartest guy he's ever met. So, you know, pretty bullish scuttlebutt for us. But the the letter, there's a few things in it. Are Your friend. Around. You're friends with Bezos, right? Right. Obviously, yeah, I, I, you're <laughs> very close with him. So is he is he smarter than Bezos? Yeah. Well. The second question, is that a test? Is Jassy as the successor a testament to Bezos? Like, is that an extra notch on his whatever rankings as a top CEO of all time? Does successor matter in that? Yes, definitely. If yeah, if Jassy succeeds over this decade, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. But here's here's the two things I remember. Um, one, they said they're investing ten billion dollars into Project Kuiper, uh, which is spelled K U I P E R. Don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Which is a Starlink competitor, which is kind of interesting. And two, they talked about. Uh, so I don't know. We can have some thoughts on that. Maybe. That's Wait, what was the number? What was the number? 10 billion into project Kuiper. So that's a pretty sizable number. Um, and the second one was a thought on basically they were describing how the fulfillment centers, they weren't able to make it ready for COVID overnight. They were ready over a 20 year period of investment. And if they hadn't made those 20 year periods of investment in efficiency, they would have collapsed during COVID. So it's kind of interesting how that, I don't know, business expertise when applied and compounded can be quite an advantage over the long term. They said that originally, or I think maybe they said like 20 years ago or something like that, a package would arrive at a fulfillment center and it would take on average 18 hours to leave. But now that is down to two hours. And then they also, okay, I have another one about AWS, but maybe we'll talk about, I don't know, Project Kuiper or um, the fulfillment centers first. Any thoughts, guys? I think um, on the fulfillment centers, I think that's just been, I don't know. I think it's, Amazon has done a lot of the boring stuff right, right over the years. And just being able to to 
execute and continually get better and, and cut down on time of delivery. And it doesn't seem like the things that are, it's not real flashy. It's not the type of stuff that you, you post the, the um, press releases on and post them on Twitter and say, Oh, look at this, Amazon, you know, but it's, they just get it right and they continually get better. And I think um, both Bezos and I think Jassy is, is following in these footsteps of being um, very detail oriented and very focused on, on just getting incrementally better every day. So, you know, I think that's, that's been one of the big, big things in their uh, big successes of Amazon is just those fulfillment centers have been really great. I think that, yeah, they might be the best systems company in the world. Like physical systems. Well, even I would even say like, I think AWS is an example of that. That was started as this internal system for themselves. And exactly. The, hey, we're going to build this great system, and then it becomes actually uh, uh, very, you know, maybe the most important part of their business. And Jassy built that; he was in charge since the beginning. In part, of, yeah. The reading through what was the book? Uh, the was it the Everything Store? Maybe it was the second book that that guy, uh, that author, released about Amazon. The I don't know. Maybe it's just like the problem solving nature of Amazon, or the the two pizza teams. But they, their internal processes for finding a way to streamline like the little nitty gritty details at every fulfillment center, it, it seems like that, like it, it doesn't seem like a structural advantage at the start, but now they've developed so many systems over the years that it's like impossible to compete with. Yeah, especially in the United States, because it's such a tough geographical area to do e-commerce it's like maybe not the toughest in the world maybe uh, honestly probably tougher than china because china's on one coast like and it's in way bigger cities like well maybe canada's tougher but i don't know it feels like united states is really hard for e-commerce but the other uh topic they talked about was aws of course and he mentioned that yeah like the same thing they continually try to get better and better for their customers and he said it's more than just computer or whatever all that good stuff I i don't know about the it but one thing I do know about is they talked about in 20, I think it's over the last five years, they started designing their own custom chips for um, AWS to help reduce costs for their customers. And they said the first, okay, so they have three of them out. And I can't remember what, it, what the order was, but one of them brought costs down from, say, using Intel's or AMD's processors for the data, data centers slash you know, cloud computing centers down 40%. So costs were down 40% for compute for customers. And then the one they just released, I think it's called the Gravitron 3 or Graviton 3. Um, that brought it down a further 25%. So down 40%, then down 25%, kind of like a, uh, maybe like a SaaS stock, but the, uh, that, I don't know, that just seems huge, like for their customers. And that vertical integration, like it seems impossible for any sort of startup to compete with, let alone someone like IBM, Oracle. I don't know. Well, I guess we have no, we're, we're not experts on IT or cloud at all, but I just found that really impressive. If you had to bet on Amazon, Kuiper, is that, am I getting that right? Or uh, Starlink? I think I know Brett's answer, but. Who's who's the winner there? I think it's hard to tell because Starlink has that advantage of being a part of the 
right? Because they already they're the the rocket launch company already, so maybe they have more of an advantage. But I wait. So, so Starlink's a part of SpaceX. No, yeah, yeah, and Kuiper's a part of Amazon, but it's not associated with Blue Origin. Blue Origin's its own separate company. It's Blue Origin's not even made to be profitable, really. It's just Bezos, almost like a charity thing. <laughs> that launches it, himself into space. Yeah, it's like yeah. his own charity. I mean, it's not really charity. I shouldn't say it like that. It's more of a, I'm going to give a billion dollars to this a year to, it's more of a scientific thing. Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi includes advanced security to help protect all your connected devices. You'll get real-time alerts. Oh, like this one. So you don't have to worry about malware. Or when your kid downloads a song from a shady link. And now all your computer can play is Red color, red color, where are you? <sighs> all blocked, thanks to advanced security. Included with Cox Panoramic Wi-Fi. Advanced security must be enabled in the Panoramic Wi-Fi app. Restrictions apply. Can I ask you guys a question about Amazon? Just since both of you guys have kind of been from the Seattle area. And this may be a question about Microsoft too, but what is what has Amazon meant to the Seattle area? Like, is it is it um, noticeable? Like, do you know, man, there's a lot of Amazon employees around here or, wow, this is this area is really developed or there's been a lot of wealth created because of Amazon. Is, is Amazon a topic among a lot of people about like, whoa, this was a big deal here? Yeah. I'd say it was maybe bigger a few years back. Since it was a hot topic with taxes a few years back, yeah. Once they've had, once they kind of developed, or was it HQ two in DC? Am I getting that right? Uh, Virginia, yeah, DC area. I, I think. Well, I think uh, if I'm not mistaken, Amazon kind of doesn't want to be purely associated with just the Seattle area anymore. It, like the workforce component, and I think a lot of the, a lot of that was maybe. Bezos and top management butting heads with sort of the local regulators. Although I think those local local regulators might be gone now or the local government officials. Um, it also isn't um, because it's not Seattle's so big it, in terms of like big corporations being here. So Boeing and Microsoft and, I'm probably blanking on a few. Starbucks. Google's, Boeing's Google's more influential. Headquarters down here. Costco. Boeing's more, inf- Boeing's more influential because I think the key that people forget about Amazon is majority of their workers aren't in Seattle because it's at warehouses. But we have Boeing manufacturing, and that is way more important just on a day-by-day, person-by-person basis. I mean, Amazon, they build a lot of buildings in downtown Seattle. They got a giant campus kind of area there. But besides that, I mean, Microsoft's way more influential in their little area. It's not Microsoft's basically got a city. Yeah. To and, themselves. And, yeah. And Amazon. Yeah. Like Microsoft has a real campus, kind of like a Silicon Valley one. Amazon's is strange. It's in the middle of downtown Seattle. It's just a few buildings. It's not the same as I don't think it's the same influence as people might expect. Um, but me, that's I mean, I don't know. I guess maybe they they've definitely driven, you know, the wealth up for sure just because of all their home prices and home prices, all that stuff. But besides that, not, I don't think anything special except for the ability for us to see all Bezos and Jassy out on the town or Mm -hmm. some, talk to some employees on the golf course. No, that's interesting. I just, you know, I've grown up in Phoenix for most of my life. And so, um, and I'm about to move up to the Bay area, but 
in in Phoenix, there's not really, I don't know. There's some, there's some big companies around and some companies have some headquarters and even, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of industry going on, but there's, there's been nothing of the magnitude of something like, you know, Amazon or Microsoft or even Costco, Boeing. Um, there's, there, there aren't things like that that just have big what footprints here. Carvana. <laughs> aren't they headquartered down there? I think they're yeah, down there. But we've got I, Carvana, you know, we've got uh, Sprouts Farmers Market. So, hey, you know, maybe we got some, go. we got some uh, things moving up. Cold Stone Creamery. Hey, the Carvana um, headquarters, I saw once. It is right next to the ASU campus, Arizona it State is. campus. And that, to me, makes it uninvestable. That choice. Why? <laughs> they're right next to the Arizona State. Come on. That's not. Hey, but, but wait just a second there, Brett. Arizona State University is number one in innovation. And so um, they are the number one university in innovation in the country. What is that? How, MIT and Harvard. That's what the, all the billboards say. And so, oh, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> right. So they're they're just getting right next to where all the innovative students are, so they can hire them immediately out of ASU. Yeah, like is they're it? like you need to get to the the. That's what they always say. A company needs to be either by the northeast ones like MIT or whatever, um, and then like Bay Area ones like Berkeley or Stanford, and there's smaller ones like University of Washington or Austin or UT Austin or some other ones across the country. Uh, but Carvana chooses. Yeah, let's do ASU. I think we want to party a bit at uh, a. <laughs> okay, I, no, it's about the innovation. It's not about ASU, the party. <laughs> there, I feel like ASU does have some. Active, oh yeah, it's an underrated academic, uh, like achievement slash like a good a good sort of graduating class of. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, a good. It has an honors. It, it has an honors college there that's really popular and one of the um, one of the better honors colleges in the in the West is what they say. But. Yeah, that's not serious about avoiding Carvana because of that, but it was a slight like, why'd you choose that? I mean, there's plenty of other areas in Phoenix to go to. Hey, here's the thing though. That facility is probably what three times the price in Seattle. So really yeah. keeping uh keeping that uh general and administrative down. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, you know, maybe. Maybe, but that Carvana still seems to be hemorrhaging money from what I see from the short sellers on Twitter. I don't know enough about them. All I've seen is their headquarters and they got this, <laughs> what is it? That giant like el- like car elevator, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, mm-hmm. no, those are vend- those are their old things. They were car vending machines. That was one of their cool. old models. Yeah, this definitely got good unit economics. All right, we got a comment here. Any opinion on the long-term potential of UI path I don't have any. I don't think anyone here has any. Um, I don't we don't own it. it. I don't think. That's the but one where it's seven like investing covers automation, right? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, not robotics automation, but well, um, like robotics, not in the sense of like hardware, but like yeah. digi- digital robots. Where it's yeah, like software, just yeah, soft, like solving like uh, mundane tasks for workforces. I would check out Seven Investing. They covered it pretty well. Um, they they have some good reports out on it. I think we did a uh, we did not so deep dive or something like a long time ago when they, yeah, we did it last year. I mean, we covered the basics of the business there, but if I remember, we were like, eh, like this is kind of out of our circle of competence, but it, it definitely was interesting. Like if a lot of enterprises take it up. All right. Any other topics? I mean, this week was crowded just by the Musk stuff. It was, it's the start, it was the start of earnings season and it seemed like no one even cared just because of the Elon Musk stuff. Just bank earnings or what? Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor. I didn't have a chance to look. I just glanced at their report. 
their revenue grew like 35%, uh, which makes sense because of the semi shortage. Yeah. I don't know. What do you guys think about kind of heading into earnings this year? I think it's at least from what I I've been reading, there's just wildly different opinions on what it's going to look like. And especially for the big tech names. Um, and you know, there's always a little bit of that, right? People always have different opinions, but it does feel like there's so much stuff going on right now between you've got these high inflation numbers and you've got um, some questions about obviously the geopolitical stuff going on. You've got questions about supply chain still. And, um, but at the same time, there's, you know, the economy has somewhat like has recovered from the pandemic. And so it's just this weird kind of crossroads where um, we're headed into a summer where people are, you know, hopefully going to be traveling more. Um, I don't know. What do, you, what do you guys kind of think of the the general landscape right now? I think the market will fluctuate. Yeah. <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that something JP Morgan said when he was asked for like his expertise on what's going to happen? Uh, no, I swear every quarter I think like, you know what, this is the quarter where the market recognizes the value of all the stocks I own. And then it's like, it's always just a split bag of like, some stocks down five percent, some stocks up. That's like, all right. Yeah. But it's, let me let me follow up on that. Like, what do you think? I think you know, we're all long-term investors here, right? We we buy stuff and plan to hold it for a while. Um, I think I probably <laughs> plan to hold it even longer than you guys in some cases, but um so like earnings season is is always been weird for me because it's like I do care about what's going on with the companies, I want to check in with them, but I don't know if I've ever actually sold a company based on a single earnings report. Um, I'm trying to think if I, I would have to think about that more, but I don't think it's happened. Um, it's been like a, a cumulative effect of a couple of quarters of, of bad results and, and stuff. So how do you guys approach earnings season as you're analyzing your portfolio, as you're looking at your holdings? Um, are there things that you go into earnings season going like, oh man, if this happens, then we're going to, we're going to get out of this stock. Or, you know, if this happens, we're going to really double down on our position or how do you guys kind of go about that? I don't think we've ever, uh, I don't think I've ever sold a stock purely on one quarter's earnings, especially some of like the longer term or like something we go into with like a long, longer term mindset. If there's something where, and we rarely do this, but if there's something where there's like a certain catalyst or maybe it's like our, our, our time frame is slightly or different. De- on that. A devalue investment, really. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Like something where we are expecting a, a big, inf- a big moment to happen to kind of like dictate what's going to occur for the rest of the, for the business going forward. Maybe that'll change the way we think about a company, but I don't know. Usually we just, there's a few metrics that we kind of look for for each business. That's a little different or a few metrics that I look for. Um, and I just kind of see the progress on those. And then I also try to, I care more about management's commentary on like the conference call than and having them miss any one individual number. Like I try to, I try to understand the tone of management and and get a grasp on what what they're thinking of the business that way even though it's like i don't know sometimes management teams kind of color their conference calls a little better than maybe the business performing under the hood but yeah that's i think one thing is reading every conference call 
can I still trust management? And usually it's like, yeah, I definitely can. But sometimes you might try to pick up on some things where are they hiding something that I, you know, like, are they not, is there something I saw in the report that I thought was maybe a little bit concerning and are they not talking about it because they're trying to hide or downplay it or something like that. But back on the deciding on buying and selling, I mean, there's times where we've bought the day after an earnings report, um, not a new position, but saying like, whatever situation, the stock could be up or down, but say like, no, something happened. Like it's in a, this company's in a way better position now at, at a better price. It's time to add to our position. But I, selling the day after an earnings report is probably a mistake because you probably see something negative. The stock may have dropped a ton or popped a ton and you're like, oh, it's time to get out. But I think it can be kind of emotional like, or it can be emotion driven if you decide to sell like the day after a report. So I think like giving that room to breathe is always, is always smart. But I, I think there definitely could be an earnings report. I mean, some, what if some company like Luckily, it hasn't happened to, to, to us or me, or I don't think it's happened to you guys, where a company just has a terrible earnings report and you can tell that something just totally fell apart. I mean, you probably sell, but I, I usually think it's good to wait and sleep on it or maybe take a week off because usually after the earnings report, there's not going to be some other material information that's going to drive the stock up or down, whatever, more. And if you're worried about just that 5% or so, that could be just normal volatility. I don't know. It's kind of worth it to just let it sit after an earnings report because deciding to sell, I, you can get a little rash if you do that. Uh, yeah. I think all my best all, all my best decisions have been made by like, like digesting information for a while, whether it's buy or sell. Like sometimes I'll we'll do like a show on a stock or something like we'll look at it and i'll get like that feeling like oh this is this is you know like a great business to buy or whatever and then two weeks later if i've kind of sat on it like maybe i'm not as enthusiastic and so i like to wait and just kind of like process the information even though and maybe not get anything else but like spotify is a perfect example like the joe rogan debacle was like that was the only thing in the news for like two weeks and I, I really didn't know what to think of it. And then like two weeks later, it was basically gone and no one talked about it. So it's like sometimes just giving it time and, and it had no bearings on the, the user count, like no one cared. So it was like just giving it time, usually that stuff will kind of boil over. And, and then the earnings, maybe if there was like a management, like a man, like a bit, an important player left, that's probably the only time that I would like mm-hmm. immediately sell something. What about when you guys are opening, here's another mechanics question, but what about when you guys are going to start a position or add to something? Do you, do you take into account um, whether it's an earnings report or maybe, I don't know, I think I know the answer to, the, to technical analysis, but um, on an earnings report, do, do you, like, it seems like it always happens to me. I'm like, oh man, I really want to buy this business. You know, this seems like a great, great stock, ready to buy it. And then I like look out and the earnings report is in like a week and a half. And I'm like, oh, oh yeah. Do I do I buy it now? Do I wait for this next earnings report? Do yeah. I split it? I tend to when I'm thinking straight, I tend to split it, and I'll just say, hey, I like the business. This earnings report isn't any, you know, like I'm gonna own this. I'm hoping to own this for years and years, and so I'll just buy a little bit. You know, I'll buy half of it now and half of it after the report, or I'll buy all of it now. But um, I don't know. Do you guys have any rules of thumb that you use for that? Well, I I don't have any hard rule. Like either way, the the one thing I have learned 
that even if you do like an insane amount of work before you buy something, like you've done basically all the checks, like you, you, you know, the business, like to the core better than like people in the business do, which usually doesn't matter. Like usually it's just a few metrics that'll ultimately drive the business or a few things that'll drive the business over time. You'll learn more while you own the company. Like it's it's just the the business evolves. Like, yeah. And so that's usually why I think like, don't, don't have your starter position be what you would consider your full position in the end. Um, and give yourself kind of a little room to potentially add, especially if you're like right before sort of a, an important earnings period or something like that. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Me and Ryan debate this, but I kind of fall on a little slightly different of just, I don't know if you're confident, just buy it all. <laughs> that you want yeah. that you want you know i mean obviously don't yeah. buy uh, you know be, be rational you're not buffett don't buy a 50 percent position of your portfolio but you know i kind of just fall on i kind of like the timing stuff and the earnings stuff i kind of just fall into the camp that that's unknowable what the stock's going to do after the report just i don't know just take the position if you go up 20 percent after the report if you go down 20 percent, stock price is impossible to predict over uh, a year-long period this also becomes sort of a question around cash management where it's like it, personal situations matter for these. Like if you know that you have a stream yeah. of income where you can kind of invest it and you can always be fully invested mm-hmm. because you're going to have the cash coming in, then, then yeah, I'd say like, whatever, take the position. It's not that big of a deal. But if you have sort of a fixed amount of cash or, uh, you're not sure whether or not you'll have additional income or a meaningful amount of additional income coming in. Then maybe I say like, keep a little buffer to potentially add. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no right or wrong way. I don't think there's a right or wrong way to go about it. Everyone, it's really up to your own psychology, I think, which is hard to know until you do it. So you might make a mistake and say like, all right, I did it this way, but that's actually not something I'm comfortable with all right, I'm going to switch it and do it a different way just on whatever portfolio management, cash management, position sizing, whatever. But you have to like do it before you learn what you're comfortable with. So it's kind of like a, it's a trial and error process, but I think it's pretty important because over time learning what you're comfortable with is going to make it so you're sustainable over whatever time period you have. Most people it's to a certain age for retirement or not even retirement, just savings for their family and stuff like that. If you want to last forever, you got to be able to do something you're psychologically comfortable with. Do you think you guys have become more risk tolerant or risk averse since you started investing? That's a good question. Um, I was actually just thinking about this the other day a little bit. And I think in some ways, I'm going to cheat and say both, but I think there's been, there's been, you know, I've had a couple of stocks that have gone down the the 80% or 90%, right? And that's never fun, but I've also been able to live through that. And part of that's because like you were talking about, I've got steady income coming in. I don't need the money for years and years to come. I've got a diversified portfolio, all those types of things. And so I think in some ways I've become more uh, risk tolerant in many of the, uh, like in, in, and the stocks that I'm willing to invest in. And in terms of individual investing decisions, I've become more risk, risk tolerant. And I was already like fairly um, risk, risk tol- tolerant to start with, but I've, I'm not 
that doesn't scare me in individual decisions, but I think I've found myself getting a little bit more risk averse um, in terms of portfolio construction. Um, and for me, that takes the, you know, I think my top 10 positions are something like 60% of my portfolio. So still fairly concentrated, but I've got about 45 positions in my portfolio. So, um, that's kind of one way where I can reduce the risk, um, you know, have a little bit more, uh, kind of, uh, uh, more market type portfolio. Um, and I think I haven't like, I haven't really like no one would look at my portfolio and go, oh man, this guy's really risk averse. But I think I have realized, okay, at some point here, whether it's, you know, 20 years down the line, 30 years down the line, 40 years down the line, once I go from growth mode to more um, living off of this, this nest egg mode that I will, there'll definitely be a transition for me where I, where I get a little bit more focused on, on yield and more focused on, um, just, you know, earning, whether it's through dividends or whether it's just through high free cash flow yield companies focusing on, um, when, that type uh, of stuff, but when am I going to see Ian with 50% in bonds <laughs> yeah. ever? Yeah. I don't know. It depends on, it depends on, yeah. If yields go up, right. If we, <laughs> if we start getting four, four or 5% tips, then, um, then I'll be all over that. That's but, a, that, that's, that's my bonds, 8% right now. How, yeah. that's another question. How, uh, at what rate, would you consider buying, having like a meaningful percentage of your wealth in bonds? 10%. No, no, it depends what inflation inflation is is too. Yeah, I guess it's true. If I I could, right. It depends on inflation. I think, yeah, the opportunity cost, all those things. I think if you started getting up to, you know, 5%, 6% yields on, um, on treasuries, then it would be like, okay, I, I really have to consider that when it's sitting around two or 3%, that's not enough for me to do it. But, but if you start getting, I don't think I'd like go completely into treasuries, but if you're getting five to 6% treasuries and inflation wasn't ridiculous, um, which that may never happen again. But um, if that was the case, I think I would be tempted. It's happening to, right now, Ian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd be tempted to, uh, to at least make it a, a portion of the portfolio. Yeah, but the thing is, we don't know what's what the opportunity universe for stocks will be if yields are a lot higher. So like, That's what true. if the opportunity seems so much better? Kind of like the 1980 type time period. Bro, um, have you become more risk averse or tolerant? Mm, yeah, I was thinking about when Ian was talking. Uh, I think when I was starting out, I didn't really know what risk was. So I think it's hard to quantify but I still, now I, don't think I, I still don't think I do. <laughs> I don't, I mean, risk is just kind of something you got to think about, like what risk you're comfortable with taking. So I think I'm more risk tolerant in position sizing. If it's something I have extreme confidence in and I'm very risk tolerant in so, a stock in sizing a position and if it drops 70%, I, it doesn't affect me too bad. It affects me, but it doesn't affect me too bad anymore. Okay. But ri- so I'm risk averse on the business on businesses. Okay. So when you say mm-hmm. confidence in, do you mean business pure, confidence? Just purely like 10 years from now, the business will still be around. No doubt. In my mind. Yeah. Or is it more quantitative margin of safety or- 
Uh, I don't think margin of safety can be quantified except in extreme certain certain extreme situations where something's trading at a super deep value situation. Liquidation so, scenarios. Yeah. So I think I'm pretty risk averse on the business side where I just want a quality business, but I'm from the stock side, I'm extremely risk tolerant. Like, I don't know yeah. if you guys kind of get what I mean there. Yeah. I think yeah. that was a good way to put it. That's I would think that I'm, I would think that I've grown more risk averse, but if I like when I first started, I mean, when I first started, I kind of took like, I played as conservative as I could because I was afraid that I was like too naive, which ended up being the right move. Like it was all pretty much ETFs and like index funds. And now I look at it and today in my personal Roth, like I have one stock that's like, and my Roth isn't most of the money I have is tied up in the fund, but uh, my personal Roth, I have one stock that's like 50%. And I would have never felt comfortable doing that. Like, three, four years ago. I think part of that is just because I I hope that I'm going to make more money over my life. And so I know that it's like not a huge portion of my future earnings, like my current worth. So I know that I can take bigger risks, like take bigger leaps. Um, but I still, you know, I've still never moved into options. You know, I never like, I've never turned it into like a like gambling it's always felt very which is like still when i think about like the general universe of investors i would say it's still probably pretty risk averse yeah and yeah it depends how you define investor a lot of people are you know traders so yeah i don't know it's tough to i think think it's it's so hard to quantify there's so many different risks out there it's it's kind of it's tough there's so much so many variables at play Okay, so yeah. if you if you had to, if you could pick, you had to, you could only have one stock. I'm not saying that you have to name the stock. The you could only have one stock for the next ten years in your portfolio. What are you primarily looking for? Just durability, uh, like it's going to be there in ten years. Uh, or is mono- upside, I'm looking for is a monopoly even a factor. I'm looking for a monopoly in a durable industry or a conglomerate with a lot of diversified business interests. Ah, those, that's, one that's of those cheating. two. That's cheating. So no conglomerates? <laughs> no conglomerates. No, ex-conglomerates, ex-conglomerates, I'm looking for a monopoly or a duopoly or whatever in a durable industry. Trading at a reasonable price, which you know <laughs> is crazy cliche. Right. That's what I was going to say. Probably something that's, you know, got a decent, decent free cash flow yield on it. So you're not at risk of just getting hammered on, um, on valuation. Um, but then yeah, durable industry, kind of durable business in a good industry. Would it be a, did, would you venture into the digital world or would you prefer physical? Yeah, I'd be fine in the digital world. I think I'd probably only go digital. I think I'd probably, I think I might stick to like physical. Just because it, like, there's certain companies that I think are, like, are the upside's probably not as good, but there's certain companies that I am more confident won't change, or where maybe it's an industry that won't attract as much capital. Like, I don't think in 10 years someone's going to completely supplant Costco. No. I think it's yeah. very difficult to do, even if the world changes a ton. 
Yeah, but their Whereas, their margins could get. I mean, their costs could get out of whack because of macroeconomic true. factors. I want to take it, but there's no terminal risk. Uh, yeah. Well, non saying zero is probably there's minimal, minimal because yeah, nothing is not zero terminal risk than the uh, potential. I would think like there's some there's some risks with almost any digital business in my mind that they will uh that they could disappear yeah most of them are long shots but like they're there i want to yeah but on the flip side i want to take as little macroeconomic risk as possible which basically to me just means inflation or you know every every business is taking inflation risk but there's energy shipping logistics risk i want to take as little of that as possible so that's what leans me towards digital Yeah, I could see that. All right, Ian, you have anything? We're wrapping up. We went five minutes late. We usually try to go ten. We're gonna usually try to go ten to eleven, but we're at eleven oh five here. We started about ten oh five. Anything else, guys? Before we close, I have out? one question that I've kind of been thinking about lately, um, and it's with the it. And I swear, people probably say this every time, but the I do. You guys think that the largest companies in the world today will let's let's take maybe the top three, which are what Microsoft, Apple, and Amazon or Google at this point. Uh, Google, I think, because Amazon stock's been pretty flat. Do you think those three will still be in the top five in 10 years? Base rates say no. 10 years? Okay, 10 years. All right, 10 years is, uh, 10 years isn't that bad. But I would also say, and this is probably what they say every time, that, the top three businesses have never been this competitively advantaged. The largest three businesses have never been this competitively advantaged or this qual- this high of quality. Yeah, I would say yes, as long as I get the um, I get to combine the value if they get broken up. Uh, okay, I like that. Ten years isn't too long on those kind of charts where, like, usually the turnover is pretty stark on like a twenty or thirty, uh, more like a thirty to fifty year time period. It's very, very stark. I would probably lean towards them still being one of the large, you know, some of the largest. But then, if you look at those charts from each decade, there's quite a bit of turnover every time, and I would not. Um, I don't know betting against that just because these ones look good. Like, yeah, they look good. That's why they're the biggest. I don't know. Capitalism, maybe it, I would hope they're different just because that means capitalism's working correctly. Um, but it doesn't mean they have to yeah. shrink. It's just that there could be some other companies that are larger. Who knows? Who yeah. knows? It's a fun question, right. though. <laughs> Should we uh, wrap this thing up? Yeah, let's wrap things yep. up. We have the disclosure at the beginning. We'll have the disclosure in the notes. Remember, I just want to say this every time. None of this is financial advice. Do not take anything we say here as a recommendation. We actually, I forget everything really that we talk about immediately after. I actually was trying to think, but that's going to do it. Thank you all for listening. Watch it on YouTube. If you're listening to the show or listen on the podcast, whatever. We'll see you guys next time.